Let's face it, running a construction company can be chaotic. As business owners, we wear a lot of hats and we're constantly putting out fires. Luckily, there's a way to work simpler with Builder Trend. I'm a huge advocate for using technology to help run AFT, and Builder Trend is one of the most crucial tools I rely on to keep me on top of every detail. Built just for home builders and remodelers, this is an easy to use platform that helps manage all aspects of my business. My team's been using Builder Trend's project management platform for the last five years. And we love that they're always improving and adding new features to make our lives easier. This is something that we've really tried to take on internally to find ways to improve our system every day. Build a Trend just released a full set of financial services, added new tools like Takeoff to make estimates more accurate, and launched a total rebrand with a new mission to help change the future of construction. And we are on board. To learn more about how Build a Trend can help calm the chaos in your construction business, Visit buildatrend.com backslash AFT. When you schedule a demo, you'll receive an exclusive 60-day money-back guarantee only available to my podcast listeners. I'm following Build a Trend into the future in construction. Come on board with us. We are super excited to announce that we have our fourth Contractor Coalition Summit happening in Austin, Texas this fall. Come out and visit with us on September 14th, Thursday. Conference will end on Sunday, September 17th. We're going to have an amazing collection of builders all throughout the country. Uh, some amazing vendors will be there in support. We're also going to have a session on construction instruction with Mark LaLiberté, which is going to be part of the summit. Just amazing content, networking, uh, ways that all of us can enhance our brand, our product, and especially our organization, looking down to the very core of who we are as builders and how we're operating to make sure that we're operating at the highest level. The camaraderie and the knowledge shared between all the builders and the teachers that come to instruct are super valuable. So make sure you sign up for the Contractor Coalition Summit. Again, whether you're a new company just starting out in your first couple of weeks of business or you're a seasoned company, there's going to be plenty of information and it's super valuable to attend. So we'll see you in Austin. For me, I think the moment that snapped was Saturday morning tax season and literally my back snapped. It, it snapped out of nowhere. And I think maybe there's a psychological component to it. I was doing a friend's tax return and I was doing it for free. And my back just, I literally went to get out of my seat and my back went snap. So I always say your body will tell you no eventually. So you might as well tell yourself no before your body tells you no, because it's harder to get your body back. So welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast. And today we have uh, Suzanne uh, Mariga with us. Welcome, Suzanne. Hi, Brad. I'm excited to be here with you. Oh, I'm super excited. So this is something that speaks to everybody, and it doesn't matter your business or focus um, when it comes to money, profit, right? That's why we're in business. You are, I am everybody. And so just as a quick intro, Suzanne, you know, CPA, fractional CFO, you're a high network tax strategist, author, uh, the list goes on. Um, but I think more importantly, I wanted to kick off here is uh, what is a profit first professional? Because I know you had that book behind you here for those watching on video. And, you know, this is a big part of your brand, you know, the profit first. Yeah. So Mike McCallowitz and I, um, Mike is actually the original um, author of the book Profit First. And um, there's several different derivatives of the book um, that really get more into niches or niches, depending on on, on how your audience wants to call it. And um, I also have a book that that is in that family. It's a little bit different because um, it's more of, you know, it's for minority businesses. But even if you're not a minority, it's a great book. It's been Kirkus Reviewed. It was Publishers Weekly's editor's pick. Um, but it was called Profit First for Minority Business Enterprises. But even if you're not a minority, definitely read it. But really where Profit First comes in a hand is, 
you know, my journey started, you know, I was like a lot of your audience. I had started a business because I love what I did, right? I was an accountant and I loved like tax strategy. I love making sure that people's accounting books were pristine and clean. Um, just like your audience, you know, when they're building cabinets, they that cabinet has to be perfect when they're done with it, right? It has to be cut to certain dimensions. And I love what I did so much that I would have did it for free. And that's exactly what happened. I was doing it for free. After about five years of, of doing my business, I didn't have much to show for it. I didn't have, you know, I had revenue. We were growing, right? Because when you're the lowest cost provider, right? Because that's what we do when we start a business is we compete against price. We look at what our neighbor is charging and we go, oh, I can I can knock a few dollars off of that and, and give you an even better deal. And what happened was even though revenue grew, I had nothing to show for it. I had no profit. I wasn't paying myself a consistent salary. And frankly, I was starting to lose like even my life because, you know, when you're the lowest cost provider, you you get customers that are running through your door like a stampede, right? They, they tell their friends about, oh my gosh, you won't believe about this cheap accountant that I just found. And, and Profit First was, was really needed for me because Profit First is all about you know, taking your profit first, taking your profit first, making profit intentional, creating an intentional bottom line. And, and I like it because it works with your natural biological instinct. You know, Brad, the more we have of something, the more we're going to use of it. You know, I think of like that, that awful restaurant, Golden Corral. It's probably not awful, but like, <laughs> I'm so proud of myself when I go there. So like whenever my, my and is like, yeah, let's do Golden Corral. I'm like, oh no. Um, but when you go to Golden Corral, you know, you've got the salad buffet, right? You've got the main course, you've got like endless desserts and chocolate fountain. And and you never leave proud because all those plates just mean more opportunities to fill that versus going to an order of dinner when the plates are much smaller, you eat a lot less, right? You've got social pressure, you've got a five-inch dining plate that only fits like two skewers, right? Before you start to look like a, the glutton in the in the <laughs> environment. And so you eat a lot less. You're you're not as hungry, right? Be you're just as full as hopefully as, you're not hungry when you leave this order of event, but you you conduct yourself in a different manner. And that's the same way it is with money and businesses. The more money we have, the more we spend. You know, my construction clients, they go, you know what? I think I might need that that truck. You know, my accountant told me I can get like a $25,000 deduction. I can get even more if it's above 6,000 pounds, you know? Um, I can maybe get some bonus appreciation on that. Or, you know, maybe I can get this filing cabinet or maybe everybody in the entire company needs a new new computer, right? Because we need some tax write-offs. Or, or maybe I can grow into that larger office space next door versus when we have less money, you know, my clients are asking me different questions. They're asking me like, hey, Suzanne, what employees can I keep? Can you help me predict what my margins might be, you know, in the next six months? Or, you know, gosh, you know, I, I just don't know if I can continue to do this 401k match. The questions are a whole lot different than when things were a plenty. And so what Profit First does is it literally works with that psychological makeup that, and that biological makeup. And it does it through bank accounts. So you have a bank account where all your money comes in. And then twice a month, that money is transferred to other bank accounts based upon their predetermined purpose. So you've got money going into your, your profit account, and it's a fixed percentage, right? And Brad, I'm going to give you a, a link so that your listeners can download what healthy company percentages look like in terms of profit and owner's pay. Um, there's a percentage of your incoming collections going to owner's pay because at the end of the day, you guys are your MVP. It's not Sally. It's not Sue. It's not George. It's you. If you don't show up to work, sales don't happen. The, the wheel doesn't continue to crank when you're not there. 
And so it's important that you pay yourself like you are the MVP. And so part of Profit First is creating an owner's salary. And by the way, your businesses are an asset. When it comes time to sell that business, if you're not paying yourself an owner's pay, no buyer is going to want to buy a job, right? Where they're not going to get paid. So that line is really important. And then because you're successful, you got profit, right? Because you're making all these wonderful transfers, you got owner's pay, you're going to have a tax obligation. Even the best account in the world is not going to be able to get rid of the IRS for you. So the best thing we can do is reserve for taxes, create that bank account, have that auto transfer going to the tax so that in the year you're not like, okay, how am I going to pay last year's taxes? Do I need to finance it with this year's money? No, you're not having that conversation because you've already put that money aside. And finally, whatever's left over after you fund a profit, owners pay your tax, that's going to be for your operating expenses. That's what you're going to use to pay your bills. That's where you're going to make decisions of, can I get that bigger release, right? Can I buy that bigger piece of equipment? Can I hire that expensive office manager or EA, right? And, and so really, you're creating this illusion of scarcity by creating this bank account. And so that's kind of how the profit first method works. And Brad, I will tell you, it was a life changer once I started implementing that in my business. Let, let me ask you about that, because I think there's a lot of points. I was taking notes just on a few things that you brought up. But it, one of the interesting comments is because you love what you do, which you can see that passion. At, you know, I've heard the comment that if you love what you do, you've never worked a day in your life. Right. But even if you love what you do, as you mentioned, you shouldn't do it for free or break even. You know, you have to be thinking with this mentality. So you're setting up your business for success or transition or whatever that exit strategy may be down the road. Right. Um, for you, when you're talking about profit first, you know, just the psychology and and changing, flipping that switch, changing that methodology. How did that change uh, how you looked at your business? How did that change as your clients, how they focus on their business by putting profit first? So the same thing that happens with me happens to my clients. Suddenly they go, okay, if I only have this amount left, right? If I only have this amount that's in my operating expenses, I need to pick wisely how I'm going to spend this money, right? And suddenly they're going to go through that bank statement. They're going to go through that profit and loss statement. They're going to go, you know, what are the things that I really need to keep my business going, right? What really keeps the lights on at the end of the day? And, and keeps us moving towards our end goal. And so a lot of that fluff stuff, I remember during COVID, you know, I was paying like my, my office rent and I would go in randomly on a Saturday because nobody was there. And I would see these beautiful magazines just stacked up, you know, like Bloomberg and all these wonderful business magazines. And I was like, look, their binding hasn't even been cracked. You know, nobody's been in this office, even read these magazines. What a waste of money. And, and immediately I was able to cut those expenses, right? Because they added no value. Nobody was reading them because nobody was traveling during that time to go see their accountant. Um, looking at those memberships, what are memberships that I'm paying for that are auto renewal that I haven't been in a meeting with for like three months? Those are some things that I can easily cut, right? Um, starting to do competitive bid, you know, just like your competitive bid, if you're, you're in trades, right? Your government is looking at you like, are you the lowest cost provider? Start, start to look at your own bid. Are they the best value? Are they offering me the best value? Or has inflation and, and those annual increases, have that has that benefited them without benefiting me? Maybe there are other others that are out there that might be a lower cost. So it really, really started cranking those wheels of how do we get more efficient? How do we do more with less? And really what's important? Yeah, I love that. And, and really when you break it down that way, it makes, um, I think, a lot of sense for anyone listening because if you're paying yourself first, um, there's going to be a reserve, right? And it's going to be uh, 
defined amount, whatever that is. But essentially now you're going to have to put this in buckets, whether it be marketing, as you mentioned, it could be company culture, team building things. It could be, um, as you mentioned, like in, in print media, it could be, you know, vendors, are they giving us good value? I mean, there's memberships. I mean, there's so many things this breaks down. So really as a business owner, if you're trying to hit that number, and this is where it's really important. You said something early on, I think is really uh, important for the listeners. You said owners must pay themselves to sell their business at some point because the reason being is that if you can show that there's value in the brand and in the company and that you're making a good living, someone that's going to buy that and operate it, they can see that they can essentially have that because you've already planned for it and you're already doing that. Exactly. You know, we just um, sold a large portion of our business. You know, we for many years had that traditional accounting and tax practice. And when we cranked out like your thousands of tax returns every year and, and your financial statements, and we recently sold. And one of the things that the, our buyer looked at was, you know, not only how profitable are you, but what is your owner's pay? Because when businesses sell, they go for not just a percentage of revenue, right? They go for a multiple of EBITDA, which is your earnings before income taxes, appreciation, and amortization. They, they're looking for the cash. Like what is the cash at the end of the day that I'm going to be receiving for this business? And so it's important important that not only do you have the millions and zillions in sales, right, but you got to have the profit to support it. that's in line with that revenue. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, the EBITDA, because that multiplier is really where the benefit comes in for people selling their business. You know, I think to it, for anyone that's done any development in commercial real estate, you know, they look at cap rate, right? And cap rate's that multiplier that's going to accelerate, you know, the proceeds, you know, of the development, you know, depending on quality of the vendors, you know, quality of the tenants, you know, quality of the location in the community, right? This all goes into commercial real estate. Very similar to your business, they're going to be looking at these couple, you know, these few items on your balance sheet and, you know, how your company's operated from a profit standpoint. But you said something earlier as well. You said, you know, a lot of us, the more we, the more we make, the more we spend. So we may be working and, okay, having more revenue, more people, but does that really mean to have more profit. And if you're looking at profit first, that's going to really evaluate, as you mentioned, purchasing equipment and really the longevity of the company and how we're positioning ourselves for future, you know, just growth or possible sell in the future. Exactly. Exactly. Too many people, they focus on the tax man and they don't realize that in a day it's cutting their ankles, right? It's costing them other opportunities. Well, it's funny you say the, the tax man, because I think the analogy a lot of us have seen, um, I know there's an episode in, um, Seinfeld and Schitt's Creek, um, and they're talking about the write-off, right? Like, and they're like, "Well, who writes it off?" You know, and there's that that standing joke. So, anyone listening, and to your point, there, some people are looking at this as, "Hey, maybe I'll purchase this suite at the professional, you know, at one of the sporting events, right? You know, because I can take clients, and maybe there's a benefit to that, right? But a lot of us, maybe they're purchasing a vehicle, but some of this is for depreciation, so they're looking at this as just a year-to-year tax, where they're purchasing more things or doing more." just to kind of net zero possibly as much as they can on taxes, as opposed to maybe looking at profit first and there's other strategies they can take, you know, and implement in their company. And it's interesting because, you know, a lot of times some people come to us, you know, they're used to that, that mentality of, you know, I'm going to cut my ankles so, so I can cut the IRS tax bill. <laughs> 
And it's interesting because, you know, as a profit first professional and tax accountant, you know, I will never tell you increase your expenses, right? In order <laughs> to, to, to get a write off, right? That, that's, that's just kind of like, oh my gosh, so you're going to pay a dollar just to say 37 cents um, on something you don't need. And, but instead what we're going to do is we're going to look at what is your long-term goals? What, what is the thing at the end of the day that is going to bring joy? for you and your business. And a lot of my clients and a lot of entrepreneurs one day is, I want to get out of my business, right? I want to get out of my business. I want to lock the door one day, hand a key to somebody else and and live my life, right? Traveled all these great places all across the ocean, right? And and I said, okay, well, if, if, if that's important to you, maybe we need to look at some retirement accounts. But I'm not talking about those rinky-dinky $6,000 a year IRA accounts. You can do a whole lot better than that. Um, I'm talking about depending on if you're closely held, meaning that it's a family-owned business versus multiple employees, right, or hundreds of employees, you know, your strategy is obviously going to be really different. But maybe one of the things that we can implement for you is a 401k. And I'm not talking about like a safe harbor 401k. I'm talking about a 401k where it works for you. Like a lot of entrepreneurs, one of the things that's important is, you know, I want my employees to be with me for a long time, right? Just see other A players, because when they're with me for a long time, they get better at their job, right? I don't have to do another video to show them how to do something. You know, they start to bring their ideas to the table. They start to get more efficient. And so I want longevity because the longer they're with me and the better they are, the, you know, the more profits I'm going to have, right? The more gross margins I'm going to have, the more profits I'm going to have. And so one of the things that I might do is say, okay, well, let's have a vesting period, right? You got to be with me for six years before you fully vest. You know, if you leave me for two years, go down to my competition. So sad, you know, um, that I'm losing you, but guess what? You're going to forfeit those 401k contributions I gave you too. Yeah. Yeah. I know I got a tax deduction all this time, but you know, I'm keeping that in my coffers. Right. And so if I'm the last one standing and you forfeited your contributions all this time, and I've gotten nice tax write-offs, that means that when I retire those contributions, they're going to go towards me. Right. Which is really, really good. So I'm rewarding those that stay right, to, to help the company on its mission, but I'm also helping myself too. It's a win-win situation in the long run, whether you stay or you leave. Um, you know, if I'm a closely held company, you know, maybe I might do a pension plan in there, right? A cash balance plan. Maybe I'm going to be able to write off maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, right? And put it, depending on how old I am, right? I, I can put away more of that. Especially if um, I'm a highly profitable type of business, I've implemented profit first and you guys are going to see some of those percentages there based upon your, but they're pretty high. You know, again, that might be something that I do is implement a pension plan, for that, you know, I might hire my kids, right? My kids, you know, they've got some, they're getting some genetics from you. They're, they're getting some of that brain power, right? Why not give them some job experience too? You know, they say it takes 10 years to become an expert at something, right? And, and so why not start them at 14 working for mom and dad? They're learning some good business skills. Maybe they're learning some bookkeeping. Maybe they're learning some customer service skills. Maybe they're learning the art of construction, right? And, and not only that, but if I pay them less than a standard deduction, well, guess what? Depending on how I am formed as a legal entity, that might be tax-free income for my child, right? And not just tax-free income for my child, but that's a write-off for my business too, because I just got payroll expense, right? Mm. And so now little George, right, he can pay for his own sports, right? Or little Michelle can pay for her own dance lessons that have all those expensive costumes every year. Meanwhile, mom and dad has got a write-off. And by the way, can you take me to Disney World too? Mom and dad enjoy Disney World <laughs> just as much as the child does, but now the child can afford it, right? So you're giving them 
amazing job experience that that that's going to allow them to succeed even more in life, but also create income that's not taxable. And now also the, another thing they can do is put it in their Roth IRA. That's that's an after-tax vehicle for them. And putting it in the Roth means that even, even though they paid 0% tax, right, it's now in this Roth IRA. So it's going to continue to grow tax-free so they can pay for their own college, buy their own home, or even one day retire themselves. Yeah, I love that. I think that's something that's really important. As you think about like the Roth IRA, especially hiring one of your children at 14, and not only the communication and you know the realistic skills that they need to go into this world, right? Because we know that in school, unfortunately, we're not learning accounting and finance and investment and you know all these things. I mean, there's courses that touch on it, but I know for my you know scholastic career, there wasn't a lot of time spent on that. You know, you have to figure this out in the world. For for someone with your expertise. Suzanne, you know, especially offering, you know, being a CPA, fractional CFO for companies, how often should a company be meeting with their CPA, with their CFO to really strategize on, you know, throughout the year based on profit first, based on other, you know, um, tax strategies that are out there? Um, is, is there a recommendation that you have or that you're working with your clients? So, I, first of all, I'll start with the biggest mistake that you can make. The biggest mistake that you can make is having a tax professional that you're meeting with once a year. You know, when someone comes to me and it's January, I'm like, it's great to meet you, but um, these are all the things you could have did last year, but look at all the money you lost. Um, so that that's the first thing is you don't want a, a once a year relationship with, with your tax professional. Um, you know, we work with some of the larger businesses, so we meet a couple times a month. And, and the reason why is we want to course correct and we can course correct early. We can predict what the tax liability is. We can implement new strategy, right? Um, if it's a twice a month relationship. But I would say at least quarterly, you want to be meeting with your accountant. Hey, what do you see that I don't see? You know, because, you know, you went to school or you're in that profession because you're good at it. And why not bring someone else in that's good at what they do? That's going to compound your results even more. Yeah, th that's really valuable. And the reason being is the more I've spoken with professionals such as yourself, Suzanne, it's funny how you, you start to pick up on all these different avenues that are out there, right? And the reality is there's a purpose to them. You mentioned, you know, hiring your your children at 14. That's a huge one. Um, you know, having board meetings at your home, right? And you can write off certain aspects of your overhead, having a home office. I mean, but the course correction, I think, is really valuable because too many of us, you know, are busy day to day. And, uh, you know, the you know, as we get down the track, there's things we're missing or overlooking and not paying attention to that you could come in right away and say, why aren't you thinking about this? Why aren't you doing this? And, and case in point, um, going back to the owner side, if you're looking at exit strategy at some point, but even if you're not, if you're looking at tax rate, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but most people say someone that's an owner of their business, you have to make sure that you're paid a salary adequate to your job, Tyler, adequate to what you're performing. We understand that. But what you don't want to do is just say, I'm going to pay myself a salary of 300K. Maybe that salary is 150K and you're paying distributions because that helps with tax. And so kind of walk through, you know, just that mentality as well. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's 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 definitely a new level, new devil, right? Every Everybody is going to be different. Um, because you're right, you know, and you, know, I, th I think what you're talking about is like S corporations and, you know, once you hit that social security, Medicare max are right. not Medicare, but social security max does S corp really benefit you. And, and that's where having that great relationship with your accountant is important. Um, because you know, there, there is a balancing act with it. You know, at some point the S corp does not benefit potentially as much as, as when you're at that lower level. Um, I know one of the things that we do is a reasonable comp study. So, and what that is, is we're 
you're looking at how many hours are you actually spending on the job? Um, you know, what would you pay if you hired somebody else to take on those same responsibilities? And again, when you're, if you're audited, they're going to want to look, is your compensation reasonable, right? Um, or was it a, a scheme to avoid Social Security Medicare tax? And so having those studies done, that reasonable comp study is extremely important with that from that standpoint. So it's always a balancing at new level, new devil. I think for the construction industry, again, you know, when you're running a smaller construction company, it's very different than as you scale and you get into a 25 million, $50 million construction company or government contracting, you know, percentage completion, job costs can become extremely important. Having financial statements that you can get a surety bond, right, becomes extremely important. And so, you know, being able to, you know, your needs are going to change. Like I said, I'm meeting with my clients twice a month and we're course correcting. We're making sure the GL is feeding and calculating margins and job costing exactly correct. You know, we're walking the, we're walking, we're actually walking the location, making sure that procedures are being done correctly. And so again, it's new level, new devil, depending on where you're at, having that relationship that makes sense. So, so speak about the fractional CFO. I know that's part of your title and, and walk through for anyone that hasn't heard that term or doesn't know what it is, essentially what that entails. So a fractional CFO is, um, it does very similar to what a CFO does, but it's for companies that traditionally aren't ready yet to step into that role. Cause normally when you're stepping into a, a true CFO role, um, you're hiring your full-time CFO. It's usually around 25 million, 50 million in, in that gap. And so really what a fractional CFO is, it comes in and it gives you that expertise. You know, like my background was, you know, after I, I, I think I told you, Brad, I started working for my dad when I was 14, right? Um, he hired me. I was an amazing tax write-off. He had five kids. Imagine the tax write-off that man was getting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, when I graduated from Ohio State, I went to work for Anderson in Chicago. Um, and so I worked with like your Komatsu, your Goldman Sachs, your really mm -hmm. large companies, and and then KPMG. So you're getting like SEC experience, big four-level experience accountant Usually, when you, when when you, when you're hiring that, so you're bringing that into a smaller company to get it ready to scale or to scale even further efficiently. So definitely making sure that when you bring in that CFO position, whether it's full time or fractional, right, um, that they have that competency to help you bring to that level. Not just Joe Bob, your cousin down the street, who graduated with an accounting degree. You want to make sure they have that background behind them. Yeah, that's really impressive because you know from the fractional CFO the benefit and and. And I'll give some relation to me. So, you know, our company, based on where we're at, right, as a company, you know, I have the option that I can say, okay, I can hire a CFO that's full-time, that's essentially working with us and our entity. But understanding that that salary is typically going to be a six-figure salary, right? Especially to get someone that's really experienced, you're going to be paying a good salary, full-time position. So am I- Multi-six, Brad, multi-six. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so it's 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 not- a, inexpensive position, right? Especially, you know, paying for that. And so you have to make sure that the volume and operation, you know, um, is substantial that you can afford to cover that because it's strictly overhead. Uh, even, you know, for, you know, job costing, you know, a lot of most projects, you can't job cost the CFO or, you know, some of that general overhead because that's considered overhead. Whereas a fractional CFO, essentially you're getting the benefit of that, but they're not full-time, you know, they're part-time so that, you, you know, you can have your standard bookkeeping, or accounting, you know, in-house that you're doing a lot of the month-to-month, -month, you know, the daily ins and outs, you know, APAR. But then you're hiring a fractional CFO that's going to come in and now do the consulting on 
I don't want to say limited basis, but from a cost perspective, it's a little bit more feasible. So you still get the same benefit. It's just you're not having to absorb that entire salary. Exactly. And I'm going to even um, put it out here too. Every one of your employees should be producing a profit, whether it's giving you more time or bottom line, including your CFO and fractional CFO. Um, I know if our clients, we are implementing profit first and their operations too, as they go and, and helping them go, what should they cut? What should they add? What, what, how do we price this? What is break even? And, and then how do we target the right profitability that we're trying to get at through our pricing? And so that CFO should be giving you a 4X on their costs. Yeah, that is a really interesting point that I've never had any guests come on and say is that they said, because it's one, it makes a lot of sense when you have a fractional CFO coming in, you know, the value proposition is there, right? You're spending them, you're spending a, whatever that, that cost is, but you're getting huge bang for the buck. But you said everyone on your team, every employee should be bringing you more time or, or bringing profit into the company. And that, you know, they could look different because time, a lot of us may value time as a business owner, right? That we may want that time. Some of us may be looking at profit first, as you're mentioning, you know, as a business owner, we should understand kind of the direction of the company. And then how do we achieve that through hiring, training, company culture? And as you mentioned, if someone can take a lot of this off of your plate, why aren't you hiring that out anyways? Exactly. So you could make more revenue, right? Um, which brings in hopefully more profit, right? So so every com- every employee should bring profit. I know one of the things that we like to see is at least a 4x on every employee. So um, we'd like to see an employee bring in at least $150,000 per employee in, in most industries. So how, how when you look at all industries, and this does not have to be specific to construction or interior design, when you look at all industries, how do you create that value or chart or metric to, to really figure out if that employee is bringing revenue to the company. Right. And that's where it really, you know, it's going to be company by company and really evaluating that organization chart. What is this person doing? Is this job really needed? Can you consolidate a job? Um, Maybe we can do more with less people, right? Maybe we can outsource it um, and give it to somebody else who who it's more in line with what they're what they're wanting to do, or or, or more efficient at what they're doing. So it, it's a it's a it's a position by position. It's it's more of a surgical type of thing versus a you know take a big old axe and, and hacks. This episode is brought to you by Pella Windows. When it comes to building homes at AFT, almost every project has Pella Windows. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relations with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers, because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. They're, their company culture, their integrity, their honesty, you know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. Yeah, it's tough to come in and just 
you know, throw that ax around. But when you're looking at a company, are you, and, and you mentioned the org charter, when you're coming in and you're evaluating one of your clients, are you looking at, you know, job descriptions? Are you looking at hours they're putting in? Um, I, to some aspect, you'd have to figure out, you know, productivity, how they're doing. You know, what are some of the different things that, you know, if I'm, if I'm a business owner thinking, okay, I'm ready to bring in Suzanne, you know, and she's going to come in and help us really, you know, get down to the nitty gritty of our company. But in preparation for that, what should I be doing? Should I be understanding essentially what my team's working on, where we have overlap, where we have double work? You know, what are things that I should be focusing on or that you're looking at with that business owner? So the first thing I'm doing is I'm looking at who's there. And there's a difference between those that are doing direct labor versus those that are overhead. Um, direct labor, it's it's easier because you can look at that. You can assign cost per job, especially in construction, right? Um, your timesheet, what job are you working on, and what percentage of your payroll is going to that job versus admin time or non-billable time. And that becomes part of your, your analysis for job costing to figure out gross margins per job. So that, that's a little bit easier. Um, when you're looking at the more overhead type of labor position, you know, like, for example, when I'm looking at my, my office manager type of position, I'm like, how's she doing on collections? If I didn't have her, how many bills, how much, how many, how many invoices would I still have in that 30 day, 60 day, 90 day bucket? She is definitely a profit center, right? Because she's <laughs> going to make that call every single day. Did you pay it yet? Did you pay it yet? I don't got it yet. Do I need to come drive over there? Um, and I call that a profit center. Some people might call it overhead or expense, but I'm like, if I didn't have her, I would have a big bucket of 90-day overhead, right? And so it really is looking at what is the particular value and how are they increasing the revenue of the business or adding to the overall profits. Yeah, and that completely breaks down that way. When you look at like AR, right, who essentially would be your office manager, whoever's collecting. And I, I can tell you that from a customer standpoint, it's interesting, you know, in the medical field, like any of us that have gone into the maybe dentist or kids orthodontist or, you know, there are some offices where, <laughs> I mean, they are on you for the mini check-in. I need payment. You know, here's the, you know, here's the guesstimated, you know, write-off for insurance and they're, they're on it. They're collecting and some are like, oh yeah, we'll bill you when we see it. And I, I can only imagine just as a business owner, you know, the difference of financials of what those companies look like. You know, the ones that have someone that's really understanding where this is, they're collecting and they're not letting things linger. And it's just information in, information out. Right. And, it, and you have to have the right personality for that position, right? Someone that's not going to be aggressive and, and turn off and, all your customers. And, Exactly. Be friendly as they as they pester you, right? <laughs> um, they're not going to be successful on that job. So there's a lot that goes into that and, and making sure you have that right fit, just like you said, Brad. So I know you're, you know, you speak about, you know, how do the top 1% max their profits, you know, secrets that people, you know, what are just maybe a, a couple cliffhangers there, a couple little, you know, items that those that are really successful businesses that you've been around, especially early in your career, you mentioned you work, you know, um, for the big four, you know, tremendous experience. And I'm sure you had a ton of exposure, as you mentioned, with Komatsu and Goldman Sachs. What what are just some things that they do or an understanding that they have to be so efficient and effective in their business? So I think the top 1%, what makes them really different is the intentionality in everything. Um, it's, you know, the intentional profitability, intentional, you know, what expenses are generating ROI, right? Um how much unbillable time do we have, right? Who, who's in production that isn't really producing and really being on top of that. I think one of the things that's important, Brad, like you mentioned earlier, much earlier in our, our talk was the culture too, having that culture of, you know, we, 
versus you've gone into organizations where it's like sloths are working at the desk, right? <laughs> nobody is moving, you know, um, you know, something broke and nobody's getting up to fix it. You know, you want to create that culture that something's broke. Everybody's getting up to fix it, right? Everybody's, uh, you know, we just cannot tolerate something being broken. You want that type of personality. Um, I know a lot of people will personality test people, you know, with you disc or Colby a to make sure they're bringing in that right fit for their, for their organization. I've seen people that actually, you're probably not, they call it cognitive testing, IQ testing, right? Mm -hmm. um, making sure that they're bringing on problem solvers, maybe giving people real problems to fix before they even bring them on full time, testing them, making sure that they are actually very good at their job, you know, instead of like, I know a lot of times we're in the culture now of building people and, and hoping that they like the job that they're being built into, maybe hiring people that actually have an intrinsic interest in that work that maybe went to trade school or trying to get in trade school so they can learn this, right. Um, that have that interest, right. So, so it's building that intentional culture. Um, and, and that is the beginning of creating that properly. It all comes down to intentionality. I, I love breaking apart the intentionality and the reason as you were talking about how intentional they are, just looking at ROI. And I was thinking about how that relates to me as a, as a company. So I'm in construction, right? And so for a company such as myself, if I had a great CPA, I'm not saying don't, I'm just saying, you know, working with you, Suzanne, on the other side, you say, okay, Brad, well, you could look at your remodel division at your new home residential construction. You could look at commercial, you could look at development, spec homes. Here's all these different, you know, pots that you're working in. Well, are you making money in this one? Are you losing money? What's the benefit? And the reason I bring that up, I, I remember, um, you know, Nike, when they shut down Nike Golf, right? They were still making, what was it, 400 million a year. But for them, they're looking at, we can make way more in these other divisions. Why are we wasting our time here if they're not, you know, the ROI? You and I may think that's a lot, but we're not understanding the overhead and everything that goes into running that operation. So essentially, when you say intentional, it's really, what do you do well? Is there a good ROI? And why are we not focusing on that and making this your bread and butter? Exactly. So that Pareto principle really comes into play. Pareto is that 80-20 rule, right? Where, you know, um, it, it was someone in Italy that they were doing a study in Italy and they noticed that 20% of the population owned like 80% of the wealth. And and they said, what happens if we extrapolate that concept? Like go to your closet. I look at my closet and I'm like, yeah, I got 20% of my clothes that I wear like every single day. And like 80% that just is like hogging up all the coat hangers, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it, and that happens, you know, and even in our businesses, there's 20% of our clients, right, that are occupying 80% of our resources, our time, our staff time, fixing things, right, doing things over and over and over again. Um, and why not focus on the 20% of clients that are actually creating that 80% bottom line, just like you said, is looking at those divisions that that really is where we need to focus. Maybe instead of doing um, concrete, right, maybe look at dirt, right? Dirt's more profitable than concrete. So maybe it doesn't require as much equipment, can't mess it up as much. Let's just do some dirt. It's funny that 80-20, how applicable that is to everything in life, right? I mean, you think even your employees, I'm sure most people relate that. Um, and I've heard like a 10-80-10 rule where um, as well, what's this kind of similar with the 80, 20, the 10, 80, 10 with when it comes to employees is you have 10% that are superstars. Like they, you know, the company culture, not a huge deal. They don't have to have meetings. They don't have to have trainings. I mean, they're going to go off and they're going to perform at a high level. You know, 80% of them are great. They're kind of, you know, they need that, you know, validation at times. They need that training. They need that camaraderie. They need that culture. They, they kind of just need that, right? To keep them going, keep them energized. And then there's 10% that take all your time, right? It's just all the stress level. 
you know, clients can be that way. You mentioned clients can be 20% taking all your time and 80% are going good. And so how do you move that? How do you vet clients? How are you figuring out? So in addition to the ROI, really what you're speaking to is as a company, when you're intentional, it's not just what division am I most profitable? What division makes the most sense? But also have to be looking at why are these clients taking 20%, these 20% clients taking all my time? Am I not setting correct expectations? Do I not have the right systems? And so intentional is not just an RI, but you're looking at systems, culture, organization, training, you know, sales. I mean, all these different little funnels that come come into the the whole aspect of it. Right. And processes too, right? For example, change orders, right? That happens in construction. And, you know, I think one of the things that especially for artisans, they're like, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can change that out or I can, I can, I can make that change for you. And it never goes through the paper, right? <laughs> it's just something that I end up doing as a, a favor. And imagine the favors you do and then and as you grow, the favors that your team is doing too, right? And so when you ha- having processes that says, hey, you know, if we don't make a change order, if we don't make this request official, somebody's going to pay for this. And it's probably not going to be the client if I'm doing favors, right? It's going to be somebody that's going to be working extra overtime, right? So the, the company is going to be paying for that. And, and so it's important to stress in that culture that we document change orders. You know, you have a special request. We are more than happy to accommodate, but we're going to have a change order. Yeah, that's really important. So when you think about, and, and you mentioned this essentially previous in the conversation you were speaking about, you know, as a company, you should really be thinking about profit first because it helps you strategize. What do I need? You know, what do I need to prepare for? If do I need to hire somebody? Do I have the funds to do so? Or can I allocate those costs, you know, to a job, you know, job cost it. But when you're thinking about recession, uh, you know, it, some companies are dealing with that right now. Um, for me in construction, we dealt with a big one in 2008, right? All of us know how that went. How does a company um, make themselves recession proof? So I think the biggest thing that a company can do, especially now and in a world where we don't know what's coming around the corner, right? We don't know, you know, we just got out of COVID. I think none of us ever expected the end of world order, which was starting, right, because of COVID. Um, I think the the big thing is to be flexible, right? Be really flexible. And, and what that means is avoiding long-term fixed obligations, and, you know, yeah, that Xerox machine looks amazing, but do you need to sign a five-year contract for a Xerox machine, you know, or your your lease? Do I nearly need to do a five-year lease? I'm not doing a build-out, right? Do I need to do a five-year lease? Let me, maybe the world is moving towards virtual right now, right? Or maybe I can get like a small plot or a small trailer that we can all meet at. Um, and so really honing on I want to stay flexible. I want to stay nimble right now in order to adjust to whatever happens in this economy. Um, the other thing is uh, having a cash management system that allows you to flux, right? Um, we talked about profit first. It's based upon how much you're collecting, right? How much you're collecting is how much you have available to spend. And that natural bank account, whether it's plenty or less, right, that's going to affect how you're going to spend. And if you're a bigger company out there, you know, not just having that cash management system in place, but having a budget, but not just say once a year, I just did this in January, cha-ching, cha-ching, I'm celebrating. No, let's budget this budget monthly, right? Let's see if, are we staying within budget to actual, you know, what's our gross margin percent? You know, if I'm aiming for 33%, you know, in terms of like my, 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 my cost of construction, right? Then, then if it's starting to go above, I know that inflation's happening. I need to adjust my pricing. I can't, 
follow the same pricing I did three months ago, right? I think we saw that a lot in COVID. And so really creating that ability to fluctuate and really staying on top of your numbers is really important with that. Yeah, the cash management system, I think that's a really important aspect you brought up. So break that down. I know part of that is the profit first, you know, but when you're speaking about cash management system to break it down for someone who may not understand really what that means, you know, how would you explain that? So, you know, at cash management, so the way that we talk about profit first, the way that works is, is looking at, uh, as Mike calls it, that bank account balancing, right? That bank account accounting where where you're looking, you know, most business owners, they'll, if you ask them, they'll confess, I look at my bank account every single day. If somebody comes up to me and they're like, hey, can we go ahead and buy a new computer? I'm going to check my bank account, right? Make sure the money's there. Um, because if they're outsourcing their accounting, they may not have the the real numbers for like, another month after month closes, right? So they're looking at that at that bank account accounting. And so really looking at, you know, your accounting and also projections, you know, we do projections. This is what we're estimating our revenue is going to be. And do we have the expenses or do we have the budget expenses that are within that line of, of revenue? For example, in construction, you may have a slow season, right? Depending on the type of work that you're doing. Summer may be your busy season or it may be your slower season, depending on what you're doing. And so being able to forecast your expenses, right? Because unfortunately, expenses are the hardest thing sometimes to get out of, you know, and just forecasting that budget, you know, because in that high season, I don't want to go and spend all my money, right? I want to you know, I, and maybe I need to put away some of that cash and my operating expense to be able to cover the slower seasons. It's really important, you know, as you start thinking about projections and budgets and, you know, there's a builder, CRC builders, and they're in Napa, California. And what's interesting is he's in a market where it's very common hard bid, right? He's competitively bidding projects. It, you know, some areas of the country, especially lately, a lot of it's negotiated, but not in his market. And he has a good metric where he says, look, you know, I know that, as an example, I'm, this isn't his, but I'll just give an example. He, you know, if he's closing 75% of his hard bids, losing 25, closing 75, he knows that his nut to crack, like he needs to be ideally making 30, you know, generating 30 million a year of work. Well, that means if he's bidding 10 million a quarter at 75%, he's closing seven and a half million. So if he's bidding 10 million every quarter, he knows that he's going to hit that 30 million mark, right? And essentially that's how he's breaking it down. How important is it for business owners, whether it be estimating and job leads and backlog and you know as you're looking at projections for the year and sales and overhead and budgets you know marketing budgets and as you mentioned new computers and xerox machines and trucks i mean just how important it is to set budgets understand your projections understand you know essentially where the company's going and then now you can really have a good map of what you're building for the year i think it's extremely important right and even for smaller businesses if you want to scale this is something that you definitely want to have in place. But I think the more important part too is that it's you're not married to this budget, right? Things can happen, things can change. And it's looking at it as a living, breathing document and and being okay with that, that it can be a living and breathing document that can be adjusted. If we had if we knocked it out of the ballpark and had an amazing, amazing month or amazing quarter, right? That that I can adjust my budget, maybe put a little bit more spend in marketing, right? So that I can have even more growth or or put it in reserve and, and invest it in other things, right? So that um, 
when that cash becomes of need, I have it there or to do a bigger spend or buy a building, it might be there. But, you know, if, if we see a slowdown, also being able to adjust our expenses too, right? With that, it's important. So um, definitely having projections, but also knowing that you're okay to things changing. Yeah. But again, the reality is to your point, Suzanne, is that if you have projections, if you have budgets, if you're planning for it, you can pivot, you can move, recession happens or plans change, or you want to increase a budget. You at least have done the due diligence and research and you're prepared to do it. And it's a lot easier to adapt and move as opposed to just scrambling because you're not really sure where you're at. Exactly. Exactly. So let me ask you this. Early on, you mentioned, especially for you personally, you said, when I, you know, it's easy for me because I love what I do that I was, you know, essentially breaking even or, you know, doing things, you know, at a lower price, you know, to get the job. How do people at, at any level, any business fight that mentality to say, uh, to understand their value, to charge what they're worth, not lower the price to get a job? And I will say it doesn't matter how seasoned you are. I know because of relationships you may have or myself, someone may come in, oh, because you're a friend, I'm going to give you a discount or do a low rate, you know, it's hard to stay away from that. So any advice you have for someone to just not lower their pricing? Yeah. And even friends come to you expecting a discount too, which is even worse. Expect it, yeah. <laughs> I expect it to be free. I want a free home built for me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think it's, you know, for me, it was just getting tired of entrepreneur poverty, you know, realizing that I was on a hamster wheel, that things weren't getting better. You know, I think a lot of times we're taught that, okay, it's going to change. It's going to change when the more money you make, if you get more revenue, things are going to change. But the reality is if you bring bad habits at a half million to a million, you're going to get the same results, right? You're going to get the res same results, but you're going to have even bigger losses, right? Because now you're dealing with extra zeros. And so it's important that realize, hey, what do I really want? What what makes me happy? Just like the tax strategy, whatever, what makes me happy at the end of the day? You know, what's going to make, you know, when I'm like the 50-year-old Suzanne or 60-year-old Suzanne, how do, how do you spell happy, right? And, and then working backwards to get that and everything needs to be in line with that ultimate goal. It's really important to think about because, um, you know, it, it, it's really hard to do that. Like, I think all of us have dealt with that. And, you know, part of it, you start a company or, you know, you start your company, you're trying to build, you know, a Rolodex. I think a lot of people probably want to understand that term, you know, <laughs> you know, as that's changed, but you're trying to build a portfolio and, you know, clients and reputation. And so there is some, yeah, I'm going to build my business and there are maybe some exceptions I'll make, but essentially you should be understanding the goal and where you want to go as a company and really try not to deviate that. I know feedback I had from my leadership team is that they're like, Brad, there's so many different you know, projects and they all have different agreements and they all have different, you know, why can't we be more consistent? And I think that's really important because it's not just for the bottom line, but also the mentality of the team, right? As they're looking at, you know, to, and, and also their livelihood to make it a little bit easier as they're coming to work to understand that there's a lot more consistency or which job am I doing here and which job? And then does it have a different term? And then how do I adjust that? And so it can create complexity too. Definitely favors favors don't do anybody any good, but the person that's doing it. And I'm not <laughs> sure if it does them any good either, because you know, do they really get the quality of work that they really want if they're if they're if they're trying to get that price so low? Um, does it really help them? And you know, one thing that worked for me in my firm was, you know, um, I used to start at having one of our admins. You know, if a friend called and and wanted Susanna to do her tax return, instead of talking to me, they would have to talk to 
a different person. They would have to talk to a salesperson or they would have to talk to an admin person. And, and it was just, you know, that person said, this is just the rules. This is the pricing structure. This is what it is, you know, because sometimes saying no isn't our gift, right? And so if that's something that you struggle with, having somebody else on your team take care of that part. So I would imagine, you know, especially you, you as an entrepreneur, Suzanne, how difficult was that to have someone, you know, or, or most entrepreneurs, do, do you find that that's probably one of the most personal aspects is the sales process, the connection process, the, you know, setting those expectations? How hard is that for business owners and entrepreneurs to let go and have someone else handle that aspect? You know, I think it depends on the personality. <laughs> um, you know, my my disc, I don't know if anybody's familiar with disc, but, um, you know, it's a personality test. It's high C, high I. And so very detail-oriented, but very people person too. And and that people person goes, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we can do it for free. Um, and so, you know, for me, I think the moment that snap was Saturday morning tax season. And um, and literally my back snapped. It, it snapped out of nowhere. And, and I was it snapped and I think maybe there's a psychological component to it. I was doing a friend's tax return and I was doing it for free and my back just, I literally went to get out of my seat and my back went snap. So I always say your body will tell you no eventually. Yeah. So you might as well tell yourself no before your body tells you no, because it's harder to get your body back. It's funny you say that because my wife, you know, she's, you know, I tend to be like, you know, people person and, you know, you want to you know, do anything you can for everybody to some extent. And sometimes my wife's like, you need to be careful of your health. You know, I went through a little health experience last month in June and it's just one of those things that sometimes your body's like, you need to kind of position yourself and it may not even be stress related, but you know, sometimes we tend to take on too much. And you said an interesting term I've never heard of, which is entrepreneur poverty. And what, what you don't want is, you know, you don't want that balance to be so off that you're working hard as an entrepreneur because entrepreneur life is really hard. It's very stressful. There's a lot of ups and downs that you want to make sure that at least there's compensation, whether it's time or money or whatever that is, right? That's important to you to offset that. You know, a friend told me this once and it wasn't in terms of entrepreneurship, but it really hit home for me. And and what she told me was no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> yeah. I have an employee that says that all the time. <laughs> and it's there's some truth there. And it seems that every time you, yeah, no good deed goes unpunished. It's sad too, because we all want to do good deeds, right? Exactly. But it's going to cost you. <laughs> so as an entrepreneurship, and I appreciate the time you made, Suzanne, um, hardest part of entrepreneurship, right? What keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night? Oh, gosh. You know, not much now, Brad. I mean, <laughs> mm. um, not much now. I can tell you what kept me up a night 10 years ago. Sure. Um, what kept you up 10 years ago? I mean, it just shows that you've created a business and a lifestyle that's, you know, fully functioning. And that's why you're an expert. So that's amazing to hear that there's light at the end of the tunnel for most entrepreneurs. But in that journey 10 years ago, as you're building to what you have now, you know, what was that like? So I would say 10 years ago, right before everything snapped. Um, it was, it was, you know, really, it was a, it was a cross of everything. You know, it was, how do we stress less about labor, right? And, and, and bring in good labor when you don't have the profit to do that. That was the big struggle 10 years ago. And, and the reality was, and, and this is where it snapped for me was because you can't bring in a players if you're not charging the right price. 
Yeah, you can't. And if you're not charging the right price, then you can't have the right people. And if you don't have the right people, you can't train them. You can't, you know, push, you know, give them more on their plate. You can, and, and really the brand, I, I'm really glad you touched on that, Suzanne, because I've, I think there's been a lot of maturity um, in my network and people that I network with. I, I can say myself and my company that there is value to hiring really good people, very talented people. There's a cost with that, and that's okay. Um, but it's amazing that when you have good people and you empower them, there may be a little, some nerves there because you're like, how can I afford them or how can I get there? But a lot of them bring so much to the table that now your company's positioned for growth. And I was just thinking about this recently and having a conversation that if you want to get your company to the next level, if you really want to be that next level, you got to have the right people behind it because that's what this, you know, that's the differentiator between the good and the great. As you scale, it makes your job a whole lot easier when you have people that, when you don't have people that you have to spoon feed, it, it makes a, bit, a big difference. So the the better people that you have, the smoother your growth will be. And well, the more you'll sleep at night, right? Yeah. Well, you're a case study. So here's Suzanne that she doesn't have anything to stress about. So that's so that's that's incredible. Um, and Suzanne personality tests them. She tests them on um, cognitive. She gives them test broken balance sheets and tell them to fix it. <laughs> you don't get into the door unless you're an A player. Yeah, I love that. So what do you do for fun? So what do I do for fun? I love traveling. Oh my gosh, I love traveling. Um, I think last year I went to Mexico twice. Um, you know, I really want to your go birthday, overseas. You, well, if I interrupt you for your birthday, I think you did London and Paris. I saw a little video you did about that there. Oh yeah, cool. that was, that was one. Um, and I really wanted to go back this year, but I was like, oh man, with pending war, uh, I'm a little nervous about that, but yeah, um, hopefully I'll get to South Africa, um, sometime either this summer or by, by winter, but I, I just love going places. Oh, that's amazing. I love travel. How does travel inspire you? You know, it's just being in a new environment, seeing how people do things differently and just learning, you know, and, and also I think sometimes depending on where you go, you see how efficient they are and how much they, how, how much you really don't need to get things done. It is interesting. It's funny how, you know, as you travel, um, and I was fortunate to live outside the country. I lived in Argentina for a couple of years and, you know, I've been to Europe a few times and, um, th there's definitely a healthy pace in other parts of the world that I think we can apply here in the U S that, um, you know, a lot of us work hard, but I think there's some value in understanding, you know, just other things that are important in other cultures and how we can apply those to us and, and really bring that back, not just our lifestyle, but also our family and our company culture. I mean, there's just a lot of value as we get to know other people and how they live. That's different than us. Definitely. Um, a lot, this is a great country, but there's a lot to learn elsewhere too. <laughs> yeah, there is. So for those listening, um, Suzanne, you've been incredible. I can't thank you enough for making so much time for us today. Uh, where can our listeners find you and reach out to you? So the best way to find me would be to, um, one, grab that target allocation percentage, find out what your what your ideal profit is for your company, depending on where you're at, um, because every company has a different percentage of profit, right? What that what a reasonable owner's comp should be. Take a take a look at that. Um, would be to um, go to the link that I am going to give you, Brad. For that, we'll, we'll give that to you or MarikaGroup.com, and that's M-A-R-I-G-A-G-R-O-U-P.com. Well, you've been incredible, Suzanne. So thank you for making time today for a podcast. Thanks for having me. If you give value from the show, please support us by giving a five-star rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. 
And I also have a favor to ask. We've had some incredible guests that come on and share their wisdom, their knowledge about their business. So if you have friends or family members that could benefit from those episodes, please share it with them, as well as any other business owners that you're networking with that could get value from the podcast or certain episodes. Please share those as well. Again, subscribe. Make sure you're following any questions that you have, topics. We've had uh, listeners reach out about certain guests that we should have on the show. Again, brad.l at aftconstruction.com. Email me for topics to address, guests that we should have on, and even if you think you'd be a great guest for the show. So again, thank you for all your support, and we'll see you next time.